Welcome to Beyond the Thesis with Papa PhD, the podcast that delves into the diverse and impactful roles scientists can play beyond the lab. With me, David Mendez. This week, I have the great, great pleasure of having with me Melissa Jean Gismondi. Melissa is an award-winning writer and radio and podcast producer whose work has appeared in major media outlets, including The New York Times, The Walrus, The Globe and Mail, Literary Review, and on the CBC radio programs Ideas, Tapestry, The Current, and Writers and Company. In 2019, the Writers Trust of Canada named her one of the five rising stars, and she was the 2020 to 2021 New Media and Public Humanities Fellow at the Jackman Humanities Institute at the University of Toronto. Melissa holds a PhD in American history from the University of Virginia. Melissa, again, it's a great, great pleasure to have you here today. Welcome to Beyond the Thesis with Papa PhD. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Um, it, it's really exciting to me too. You you have been uh, these last these past few years working on great content on the podcast side of things. Uh, it's a medium that's that was born some time ago, but that is evolving day by day. And um, and I, I'm really excited to have someone here who who is, comes from within the medium. It's not a it's it's a, not a frequent uh, occurrence. But uh, apart from that, I'm also super happy that you're here because your path, uh, your path from academia to this to this modern and and I would say cutting edge industry in the media domain uh, is not a traditional one. And uh, of course, the title of this uh, episode and this conversation is "The Power of Graduate Internships." Uh, and I'm eager for you to talk about that. But first, I I always ask guests to add one or two things to kind of uh, give a, a, a wider picture of who they are. So can you tell people who are watching, people who are listening, one or two other things that define who is Melissa Gismondi? Wow. I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. <laughs> it's such a simple, such a simple but good question. Um <laughs> I am also, I'm a very creative person, and that is a lot of what I do job-wise. I'm a runner, and that helped a lot during graduate school to go for long runs, sometimes with people, sometimes alone. Um, those things also really sort of helped keep me sane, continue to as well. Um, and I think the creative component is something I underappreciated during graduate school that I've sort of spent the last couple of years reconnecting to. Um, so yeah, I, I think those are two sort of different components of me that don't fit neatly into the little bio box. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I really find it interesting what you say, because it really kind of completes the picture, because in a sense, what I'm hearing is there's a part of you where ideas a part of you or of the time during your day where ideas are born, there's a part of your day and of your life where you're producing things based on those ideas. And I'm kind of summarizing very quickly. And there's a part of the day when you're kind of in this meditative, I would say, I would say like that space, which is running alone or accompanied, but where your mind is elsewhere and you kind of recharge to then come back to the, the creation does that make sense oh yeah 100 and when i'm running 
if I'm alone, sometimes I'll listen to podcasts, sometimes not. And um, I very frequently am taking notes. Like sometimes things will just start, I'll start writing a piece in my head and I'll just stop to sort of write it down. Or that I think is, you know, a lot of people talk about if, if you're doing sort of any sort of creative task and writing a dissertation is a creative task, you have to create, you're shifting from, I remember I had a professor say, the tough thing about graduate school is you're shifting from being a consumer of scholarship to being a producer of it. And if you're in that produ production role, you need that space to just let your mind wander. And people talk about the power of boredom for creative, for creativity, which is in such short supply these days. So, you know, almost scheduling, like, all right, this is, you know, 45 minutes where I will not have anything. I'm just going to be, you know, it's kind of weird sometimes. <laughs> like we're not used to it anymore, but uh, a lot of interesting things come from that place. It's true. We're not used to the silence anymore. There's always something, something buzzing in your pocket, uh, you know, sound coming from anywhere in, in, in the spaces you're in, be they professional, commercial or whatever. And, uh, and yeah, there is value in that. It's, it's funny because boredom, there's kind of a negative connotation, at least in, in my view to, to the word. And, and maybe silence is, is another way to say it or under stimulation. I don't know. Yeah. We're overstimulated and it's kind of, putting your hand on the knob and just kind of going down, 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 and to let something bubble up from your mind or else it, it just won't. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, definitely. Now you mentioned that running was a part of your uh, graduate school life and was important, if not key to that part of your life. Can you, can you develop a little bit more on that? I, I, I'd really like to know what you mean by that. Yeah, so it's a funny, just like time-wise, I actually started running as I entered my PhD program. So I was living in Montreal doing my master's. Fortunately, I started running in April of the year in Montreal. So by the time I moved, I was living in California, so I didn't have to try and run through Montreal winter. Oh my, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was when I was living in places that were, you know, I mean, I, I moved to outside Sacramento, California. When I was living in places, I didn't really know anyone that were very different from me. When I was dealing with the stress of graduate school, um, getting away from screens, getting away from the dissertation. I had a small running group when I was transferred and was in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia with some graduate students. Um, so many different components of it, whether it was like the, the physical stimulation of just moving my body, because so much of what you do in graduate school is passive, right? You're, I mean, it's passive, but it's very demanding intellectually, but you're just sitting there reading or writing, moving my body, um, being outside in nature, it was huge. I mean, I'm very, it was just purely coincidence, but I'm very grateful that I took up running at that time uh, because I think about just what an impact physically, emotionally, so, like in so many ways it, it helped me. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it doesn't have to be running for someone, but something that gets you away from that world for a little bit. 
Yeah. And would you say that because you mentioned running with people, that there was also a, having a community aspect to it? Yeah. So when I moved to Charlottesville, Virginia, I, I was a transfer student. So I didn't really, you know, I was sort of entering, I left my cohort in California and I was entering not really this community or cohort sort of already existing. Um, and I joined a couple other history graduate students. They were training for a marathon. I didn't or half marathon, but I thought I'll just, you know, I'll run with them. And we we ran every Saturday morning together. And we were all history students, but we talked about, you know, one of them was studying like, you know, Spanish Catholicism and, you know, New Spain and very different things. And so, yeah, sometimes we talked about history and we talked about, you know, helped each other get through whatever was going on in graduate school. And then it was like, it was, it was nice to have a place to be <laughs> and people who are waiting for you, which isn't always the case in those early days of graduate school when you're alone a lot. No, it's true. And I guess also, uh, I imagine there's, there's a, a certain, there's a positive to having this community of people who are not in grad school with you who are yes in the same domain you can discuss things but they're not your uh, you know lab mates or or whatever because the, the, the it's a different universe so there's not not so so much interference with actual i don't know day-to-day -day of your research uh it, it's very interesting and it, it makes a lot of sense to me um now no so i think we do have a, a better picture of, of who melissa is uh I think uh, we also start to get a picture of um, this this you know arriving in Montreal and how you kind of you took this this new activity that actually brought kind of a, a healthy uh, a healthy uh, how can I say breath <laughs> of air <laughs> into your your graduate school day to day. Um, now, You know, I, I mentioned when I presented you uh, all this work that you've done in writing and podcast production with, you know, in great, in outlets that are really, really well known. Uh, you know, I mentioned um, New York Times, I mentioned uh, different programs on CBC. But when you start a PhD, this it's, it's not usually the type of career that you envision. What was your vision for yourself, let's say your five-year vision or your post-PhD vision when you started? I, I mean, I did a PhD because I thought I wanted to be a history professor. Um, and I had phenomenal uh, American history professors at McGill who, and they're sort of legendary. Like when you talk to other people, you know, I'll meet other people who would say, oh yeah, I took one of his classes. You know, it's, it's the kind of classes where your face lights up. Um, And so I thought, you know, that's what I want to do. Like, I, I want to do that. And um, I knew I had to, you know, if I wanted to be competitive in terms of getting a job in American history, I would probably have to go to the U.S. So that's what I did. Um, and I think I sort of, this is maybe a little bit cynical, but I sometimes call it sort of like playing the game of, you know, doing the conference in the humanities, doing the conference rotations, doing the peer review, all of that. You know, I was doing it for a couple years. And then I think I slowly started to realize that the way I could maybe try to get it to work out for me was not 
sort of what I wanted for my life. Um, you know, I would be up, you know, some of my friends in my graduate program, they were applying to, you know, 50, 80 jobs and they were, they wanted to be a professor so badly that they were totally okay moving to places where they didn't know anyone and, you know, all of that. And I started to, you know, I'd been away from where I grew up outside Toronto for a long time. And I started to think, you know, I don't think I want it that badly. Um, I didn't know what else to do, but I started to know if it works out in a way that I like, great. But I didn't, I didn't see it happening. And I think another thing too, is I wasn't, um, I didn't love being a specialist. Like I'm very much, there are things that I'm interested in, but I'm very interested in a lot of things. And I think that's what pulled me towards something like journalism and, and nonfiction writing where there are specialists and, you know, if you in like news, there are reporters who have certain beats, but otherwise, you know, I can, I've done stuff on bioethics and, you know, politics and literature that doesn't really work in the academic world. Right. Of course. Of course. This is, uh, it's, it's interesting. And, and so it seems to me that you didn't have around you uh, people to model look you, i mean when you started thinking okay the i'm not going to uh fight or or, or go for a professorship and and go all uh you know the distance to to get that i don't want to have have these compromises of needing to move etc etc which is a, is a question for a lot of a lot of us who go through the phd at that point uh and i i have the feeling that you didn't ha feel that you had tools uh, or information on what else you could do, which is also a, uh, a frequent issue. Uh, graduate students are formed to, with one objective, professorship, and then they hit this this 10, 15, 20% wall, depending on the domains, it can vary, of people who actually can access tenure-track professorship, and then the other 80% often end up having to, you know, to... Uh, just improvise and scramble at the end in the last year to, to figure out, okay, what career can I land after these five years of very specialized training? Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't. Um, so I guess this is where the internship comes in. Uh, when I was, when I transferred to the university of Virginia, um, I, I guess it was, I guess I'd been there maybe a year and there was an internship that came up at Backstory, which ran for, I think it was about 12 years. It started off as a public radio show uh, produced and they sort of distributed it to different public radio stations across the U.S. And it was produced out of Charlottesville. Uh, and then they, as I was an intern, they actually shifted to be podcast only They've since wrapped up production, but they had an internship for a re researcher for the show to sort of help, you know, give the host research blur blurbs because they're, they were all uh, historians, but they were obviously, again, they were experts in their field. So the show was about doing the history behind the headlines. So they could, you know, if it was in their field, they could do it no problem, but sometimes they needed some research to just, as we all do, especially with, you know, you need you don't always remember the specific dates and percentages and all of that. Uh, so I applied because I thought, well, I love radio and 
you know, why not? I remember asking my advisor if I thought it would work to my advantage or disadvantage in terms of getting an academic job. I remember him saying, it can't hurt. And if I can recall correctly, I don't think anyone else really applied. Like most people (laughs) were not that interested in it because I think it was this narrative of you do the work that will get you a tenure track job. And this was not considered part of it. Um, But for me, it opened me up to a world of, you know, freelance journalism, writing, podcast production, audio production, all of those things. And it still took me a while to sort of see myself as someone who could do that. I definitely had imposter syndrome for a long time. And I thought, well, I'm the historian research assistant here. But it at least started to familiarize, I've started to familiarize myself with that world. Um, And I, you know, I think that was pretty significant for me. I didn't see it at the time as often happens, but looking back, it was significant. Yeah. And how was your day to day? So, you know, you had to, you have to add this thing, this activity to your, uh, to your agenda. Uh, how, how did you organize, you know, uh, how did you uh, uh, negotiate those first, uh, those first moments of, okay, now I part of my week uh, is spent in this other place, but I, I still need to be working on my research. Cause that's something people often ask, or it's often the, the objection that they have is that is I can't do something else. I have to, you know, I have to put all my eggs in this PhD basket and, and, uh, and they wonder how can they, how can they add something else to their day to day? I think what really, I mean, one thing that really helped me was the fact that I was no longer, I, I was on a, fellowship. So I did not have to teach anymore and be a teaching assistant. Um, So that understandably for, I think a lot of other students, probably they felt like I can't take this on in addition to being a teaching assistant on my other work that I have to do. So that freed up some time. Um, And I think, you know, I, I, you it, it gave me i talked about places to go i would go into the office where they made the show and i would do you know i think it was like 10 hours a week at first um but i think it also the pace of it quickly a i liked the pace of it and b it sort of adjusted me out of that academic pace which can be quite slow (laughs) um at this show they produced a show once a week so there was always new topics always new research when i was there they were um organizing a specific appearance on another npr show so then there was which was a daily show so then there was there was a brief period of a lot of research needed a short you know time span and it just readjusted me to different paces of work. And um, that I think also was really helpful because I can imagine for others, that is a tough adjustment to make if you're used to having months and months and months to do something. And then you enter a different industry yeah. <laughs> where, yeah. you know, it's daily or weekly or whatever it is. Yeah. 
definitely the 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 pace at which time passes is something that's often referred to by people in industry or vice versa people changing from one side to the other of the fence is how times flows at different speeds <laughs> um and, and and also that how projects need to be closed at different speeds too um now a, a question still about this new space you mentioned um imposter syndrome just before did you have uh some mentorship uh, how was the onboarding into this new team that you were now starting to to contribute to um the senior producer was he was really great uh and i he helped me they'd had a research assistant before i believe or they were sort of um so he helped me um in a way it was like i was sort of already primed for it because you know you have to sort of basically write little research blurbs on a subject. It was, you know, it was about American history, so I could already sort of know the basics of it. Um, I think that in terms of mentors, I met uh, soon, I, I can't recall her official title, but there was a woman named Diana Williams who worked there, who she was uh, would work on their digital strategy for the show but she i remember really sort of saying to me why don't you start writing things like op-eds you know connecting this was also i think when people were starting to really connect what was going on in the show was connecting what was going on in the news to history providing historical context and it was sort of like oh me you know and <laughs> she said, you know, helped me publish my first op-ed, suggested I write it, suggest I pitch it to a newspaper. Um, and those are, I think, the little, like, the people you meet along the way. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to have several of them who help you see something in yourself that maybe you can't yet. Um, or you're not in that space or you're, you know, I was still probably thinking I'm just a failed historian, <laughs> like something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, which uh, a lot of people at the end of the PhD, when they, when they end up outside academia, they have, this is a feeling that's shared by a lot of, by a lot of people, this feeling of failure, of failing out. And it's totally not true, especially if 80 percent of people, it's, it's the path that they end up following it can't be failing out. It's just the natural way of things. <laughs> you, you, there's, a, there's a selection for those small number of tenure track positions. And then the rest of us, ha, you know, the, the, the socioeconomic structure will absorb us and we'll need our skills in another way. Uh, th that's the way I see it. Now, there's one thing I didn't ask you or I, I, a detail that I wanted. You said that you saw this, um, this, job, post, this job posting how how did that come up where were you looking for job postings where because often people also wonder where can i find these opportunities that are not exactly you know canonical let's say if i remember correctly it was sent through so because it was all within the pot the show was produced by virginia humanities which is the state sort of humanities agency and it had connections to the university of virginia where i was a, a student I believe it came through sort of our history department graduate listserv. 
someone, a friend had passed it to me and said, you should apply. You love radio. And I would like, I would, you know, have the radio on and listen to it all the time. Um, So I think in that case, you know, it was fairly easy. But one thing, you know, I would really say to people is I think there are so many opportunities in like the, the, university structure and the system and there are so many things and once you're not a student you can't take advantage of them usually so while you're a student and you qualify you can apply you know i think like what's the harm you know Mm -hmm. worst case scenario you don't like it and you think this isn't for me and then you know that but so I think sometimes it probably requires a bit of legwork, but I think at a m- most sort of large research universities that would have types of PhD programs probably have some sort of internship that might be of interest to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do explore those resources while you're in graduate school. And and it applies for all the other stuff. Like uh, I often mention uh, mental health services. If you need that, if you're in grad school, take advantage of it while you're there. All of these things, when you leave, then you're not eligible anymore. So for sure, no, I totally agree. Yeah, I remember it was really, I went to a mindfulness, you mentioned mindfulness at the beginning. I went to a mindfulness meditation group for graduate students. And I remember when I graduated, I stayed to do one semester as an adjunct. And I remember going to the leader and saying, please, can I still come? And she said, you know, just because I thought, you know, I, those great things, there are great things that are available for students. And usually also the, the uh, add on that I, that I add to that, uh, because it was my experience and it was your experience too. When you're from abroad, uh, you might be overwhelmed by being in this new country or new city. And, uh, you know, you might, go into tunnel vision and not see these things and try to be to be well mindful of all the things that are available go to the students uh, student services uh, even though you're a graduate student there'll be someone there who'll be able to to share some info with you and to point you towards uh, whichever resources are and uh, and I think often if you're a foreign student you might just uh, miss out because you're dealing with all this other stuff in your life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think they often have career counselors too available for graduate students. So I think that's, I didn't do that, but I wish I had. Yeah. And that's it now, you know, hindsight uh, is 2020, right? <laughs> um, but that's why we're here. That's why Beyond the Pieces is here is because we went through these things and we now can look back and say, here, here's how I would have done it if I know, knew all that I know now. And that, and hopefully, people listening, people watching, if you are in grad school, you can not do the same mistakes that we did. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, you mentioned this this person who kind of mentored you and who kind of believed in you and got you to believe in you, and I really like that because uh, uh, it kind of talks to the subject of imposter syndrome, and I, it feels like um, there's a message there of if someone else around you who in this case uh, is, has more experience, says, hey, I see you doing A or B or you know, uh, this, this role or that role, and your imposter syndrome says, ah, no, sorry, it's not, it's not for you. You're just too, you're too green, whatever. I, I think there's a message there, right, of 
trust this person uh, and and dip your toe in the pool and allow yourself to try. I, I, it feels like it feels like it's what you did. Yeah, I've done it. There's, you know, there's that time. And then um, another time, my sort of first entry point into working with CBC, I, I remember, you know, the there was this great manager, Linda Shorten, who thought, I think she could be a great producer. And I remember going home thinking, I'm not a producer. I'm like, I don't, I don't know what they do. And I don't, you know, and I mean, how silly would it have been if I said, no, I, that's not, you know, I can't do that. And well, people do that. People do no, that I, I know. And I know why people do it. I know why people do it. I really didn't have much to lose because I didn't have anything else going on. And it was a great opportunity. Um, but I, I, you know, I think a big part of this for people who leave with PhDs and don't know how to find their path in the job market. For me, a big part of it has been connecting and being lucky enough to find those people who will believe in you and see that you do have something to offer. Very often, there are people who have also also come with PhDs and have found their path. And it's sort of like, a, I'll, I know what it's like, come under my wing, I'm going to help you. It's not always. Um, you know, so for these two women I mentioned, you know, they saw something in me and they encouraged me and um that's luck like that's part of it is just you just need someone to give you a break very often and i i don't know about a lot everyone but i know for me when i left graduate school i it was tough like i didn't know you have an i had you i think a lot of people you have an identity crisis i've been a student for so long who am i now what am i I, if you don't have a path, you really don't know. Yeah. So I'm not I didn't be teaching. I'm not going to be teaching. I'm not. And I don't, you know, you're not always in a great place where you can believe in yourself and have that confidence. So to those gracious people who see it in you there. And I think most people meet them. I think they're, I think they're out there for everyone. Mm -hmm. No. And, and you do come out of the, the graduate school experience, especially the PhD with, uh, with a specific, let's say, uh, flavor of creativity uh, and of language, and of there's a formatting to your to how you think and how you structure your ideas. There's a stamina and endurance too. I feel that that people come with, which is not a given for everyone. Um, and you also mentioned it an ability of an ability to learn on the go uh, about something. Uh, that you didn't know about yesterday, but someone asks you to, to go now study it, and you can kind of quickly make yourself uh, um, not a specialist, but someone who now has a, a good modicum of knowledge about this domain, which in the domains that you worked is, you know, is key and is part and parcel of the day to day, I feel. But not only, you know, if you go into industry, uh, you know, you're in the, from the life sciences like me, you go into industry, you go. Uh, into into uh, you know the government into policy whatever these types of skills are very transferable uh, but but I agree I agree that there's a there's a, an identity crisis there's some some sadness at the end uh, of of the of that that journey 
Um, but we're here to tell people that 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 feeling is because you're kind of leaving this tribe for which you had kind of prepared yourself years and years to go into. But the good news is there's a bunch of people and organizations and uh, and corporate and you know corporations and government etc out there structures that are really eager to have people like you with with the skills uh, of of a PhD the transferable skills of a PhD that need these people uh, in them and and well you know this to more and more uh, more and more people are are going uh, and trying to solve these issues that we have today be it climate be it uh, social unrest and migration uh, it's and there's you know more and more problems get more and more complex so uh, having a research background and a research mindset is going to be useful in different uh, walks of life i'd say yeah no definitely and i think those those feelings are totally normal like of course you know you're going to feel frustrated angry grief you know grieving I, that's just totally normal and so i think um understanding that for a lot of people that's part of the process you know, I didn't know that at the time, but now I see, you know, I see lots of other people I've known go through it. And it's like, of course, how could it be any different? <laughs> I'd been a student for my whole life and now I wasn't anymore, you know, and no attachment to a university. It was a big, di- big change. Yeah. And this kind of shows how, how the PhD is uh, in, in a way a solitary uh, endeavor because I, I went through the same. I thought that the difficulties, the difficulties I had um, at the end of the PhD were it's something just particular to me were my fault, whatever. And then years went by and like you, I was like, Oh no, the students I'm talking with now who are, what you know, who are in this career fair are going through the exact same questioning and the exact same pain that I was. So I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's important to, to talk about it and to normalize. Now, one thing we didn't, we didn't talk about is your, you know, cause you had this internship, which was around the middle of your PhD or cause, uh, what was the temporality and how did you go from there from that to then finishing to then adjuncting like you said but then kind of accepting that okay this is not the path that i want to follow um so yeah i did the internship i think for 2 years and then i for the for the last year i thought okay i'm going to focus on wrapping up the dissertation um and then they got another graduate student in to do it. I think we got two applications when I left. Um, and uh, so then I focused on just finishing because I knew I just wanted to finish the dissertation. Um, and then I didn't know what to do. And I thought, well, I'll just adjunct at the, you know, I taught a class. I had applied for an internship at the Walrus, which is a, sort of current affairs magazine here in Canada and I didn't get it but another again another person sort of thinking this person has potential the woman who's now the senior editor said we we're not going to give it to you but I think you should write for us so I started sort of working on pieces with her um I was adjuncting and I think actually like one moment um so I graduated in May 2017 or I defended in May 2017 and then the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville was August 2017 
And the woman Heather Heyer who was killed, that was just a couple blocks from where we were living. I was living at the time. And that was sort of a pretty transformative moment for me in terms of realizing how much I already knew this, but it really cemented it, how much the historical context matters for all of these crises that were, you know, you mentioned a handful of them uh, because, you know, the, the issue was about this statue of Robert E. Lee when the, the Confederate generals, and if it was going to get taken down and, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about when the statue was created and why, and all of these things. And so it really, I guess, you know, made, made me see that there was a, a bigger purpose to sort of applying history to journalistic practices and journalistic stories. Um, so then I left adjuncting because I just thought like it was just sort of putting salt in the wound of me <laughs> still being. Uh, and I didn't know what to do. And I just sent out emails and networked and through cold, cold call emails, I got a path into the CBC and happened to meet uh, that woman, Linda Shorten, at a time when she needed people on the show Tapestry. And I was there sort of in a freelance temporary, like, you know, casual basis, but for about a year. And that's where I really learned a lot of the role of being a producer, because before then, a lot of the work I had done with Backstory was the research behind the scenes, helping the pro providing the producers with research. With now I was the producer. Yeah. And I think that was part of the identity crisis. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. And, and uh, I think reinvent reinventing yourself uh, is part of the game uh, afterwards. I think you did something right, which was keep cold emailing and, and, you know, reaching out to people. Um, it's, it, it's still, you know, it, it works. Of course, uh, the, the fact that you had some this these two years experience must have counted uh, uh must uh, you know must, on the scale for people uh you were reaching out to so there's that you know how can i say if you finish your phd you just did your phd research and then you try uh, reinventing yourself on the fly and try to land a position uh you it can happen depending on who again who you talk to who you meet and and the things that you bring from before even graduate school but this internship i'm sure was uh, really instrumental in people opening that first opening up your email and going through it with interest and then opening that door to, for to you working freelance and eventually working a more in a, in a different capacity the other thing that i like is that it seems that you kind of learned uh on the job do you remember the the, the first position that freelance position what was the job title Oh, that was associate producer. And yeah, and that's like, I, this is, I think also, I did not, I didn't even know what the job of a producer was. I remember I was working and I loved it. And I said to my colleague, like, I can't believe this is a job. <laughs> you <know? laughs> um, so you don't know what exists as well. Right. Yeah. That, and that's that's why I always try to get people to at least from year two, three of their PhD in countries like ours where it can go to four, five, six, uh, you know, by the middle of the PhD that they start widening their horizons and seeing what's out there because 
if you start at you know three months before you defend, it's too late to learn what's out there, what jobs are people uh, getting, what's the lingo, what's the culture, etc. It's too short an amount of time. Um, but uh, but what's interesting about what you said, and that's why I asked about the the job title, is that you got a job title that you didn't really know what it was and that you learned on the go, probably shadowed someone, you were mentored. And often people, especially people who are, you know, given to overthinking, and I know that women do it more than, than men, when a job description, uh, when you don't fill all the checkboxes, or at least the majority of them, you don't apply. And here, here is Melissa going into a position with a name that she really didn't know exactly what it meant, but someone <laughs> yeah. told her, hey, come and work for us. We think this is going to be cool for you. And you took that leap of faith. You believed in yourself. You also believed in what the other person was kind of envisioning for you. And ta-da, you know, you, you actually... You actually became that you you and you made it your job. I think it's it's there's a great lesson there, of um, uh, of um, not taking job postings face value, uh, and and it's something that when we come from academia, well we we don't know it's a culture we haven't been in, so we're very Cartesian. We look at something. Oh no, I'm missing. I don't know fifty percent of my data i can't publish this article you know yeah yeah <laughs> and uh and it's it's a more it's more um flexible than that i'd say yeah and i think for me like i was applying to cbc i thought okay well let's where would be cool places to work so i was applying to cbc jobs they were predominantly admin and assistant type jobs um because i just didn't i just thought i'm just gonna throw this and see where it goes um, had I seen an associate producer job, I would not have applied to it, it precisely for what you're saying. In my case, and this is the sort of, there's a lot to say about what's bad about our precarious, the precarious nature of work for a lot of people these days. The one good thing is I wasn't, I didn't have to apply. I was sort of hired on like a day coming tomorrow. We'll see how it goes. And then tomorrow became a week and then a month. And you, this will often happen, I think, with people. And then maybe down the road, you got to actually apply. <laughs> but um, they're trying you out, but you also get to try them out and see if it works for you, if you like it. And again, there's, you know, there's a lot that's bad about it, but that's one thing that's good. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. Uh, Melissa, we're getting to to the the end of the of the interview, and uh, but I still have uh, have one or two things uh, to that I'd like to ask you. Um, it because you know we're looking back, like I was saying, you know, uh, hindsight is is twenty uh, twenty. We can kind of make sense and put everything. You know, uh, this goes here, this goes there. But I think we've been also frank, uh, you, uh, especially. In the fact that there was serendipity, there was l luck involved to a certain sense. You were doing legwork, but uh, there, there's a, there was a human factor uh, of interacting with people who got to know you and who kind of, you know, who kind of uh, opened the door for you or actually kind of made you uh, aware of possibilities and kind of offered you a chance to try something out. Um, and it, it people who are finishing let's say a phd 
might feel, well, it's it's unfair that after all of this work, I still have to face uncertainty or be reliant on luck to a certain extent. And uh, of course, it's not all luck, but I, I'd really like to spend a few minutes as we end this, this conversation on this, because I think it, it, people uh, can be afraid of this and may not take the leap because of the uncertainty. Um, people can fe- can have negative feelings about it, but I think it's uh, somehow it's 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 an aspect of of human life. But th- we need to accept it. And uh, I don't I don't know where we go where I'm going, but I, I kind of I'd love to hear what what you looking back. Uh, what's your reflection on it? Uh, and and what lesson we can take and and what's kind of a an actionable uh, piece of advice that we can give people listening yeah i guess the first thing i'd say is it is unfair and it does you know it is it is unfair and i get those feelings um you work really hard in a phd and the reality is, you know, for most of us, the that's not going to be rewarded in like a traditional sense in terms, you know, my salary never has reflected my education level or anything like that in other contexts where it might, you know. Um, so it is totally fair. Um, I think the thing with luck is it's like that, that phrase of sort of how you have to there's luck, but then you also have to be able and willing to meet the opportunity. So for instance, you know, if I hadn't applied to that internship, my connection into the CBC, if I hadn't emailed the woman who happened to be the executive producer of a show, I'd actually emailed her before to complain about something, not on the show, but just sort of the lack of uh, the lack of women participating in the monk debates, which were something they were airing. And she'd responded to me. And so when I emailed her a year later, two years later, you know, I said, you probably don't remember this, but if I hadn't done that, then I wouldn't have, you know, it's all of those little things. And I had no, you don't have a plan. I mean, you have many plans. You have the plan you're going to take that day. And you can't know where it's going to go five or 10 years down the road. I think that's tricky for PhD people because in the world of academia, it's rigid and it goes assistant professor. We know the levels and we know how it goes. And that's not the case in the majority of the world. (laughs) So, um, so in terms of action items, you know, lean, someone gave me this advice. It's sort of lean towards what excites you and lean towards where opportunities are showing up. So for me, I was getting nowhere with academic anything, even if I was, you know, oh, there's a job at the University of Toronto. How cool would that be? I'll apply. I wasn't, I wasn't getting nowhere. But then someone at the Walrus wanted me to write for them. So I thought, all right, I'm going to lean. This is kind of exciting because it's scary and it's unknown. And this opportunity is being you know, someone's giving it to me. So I'm going to lean into that. Now, I wouldn't do that for something that felt just totally wrong for me, you know, that you're every sort of cell in your body screaming, no, don't do it. But it will be scary. So, 
you know, try to determine, okay, what's scary because this is new and unfamiliar versus scary because it's just not right for me and I don't want to do it. And sometimes I think people know staying in academia isn't right for them, but you do it anyways because you try to do it anyways because it's the familiar path and you know how it's going to go. And the other path, you have no idea, but it's sort of more exciting and it can lead to more interesting places sometimes. Melissa, I think this is a, it's a great message to, to start wrapping up the episode. I just kind of want to do a, a kind of a, to sum up myself, what what I'm distilling from, from this almost hour that we've been together. And the first big takeaway for me is if there is something uh, within you, a passion for something, an interest for, for something, don't uh, let it go or don't ignore it while you're in graduate school. Of course, your graduate work is going to be taking uh, a lot of your time, a lot of your bandwidth. But um, from your story, Melissa, I feel that small, tiny things that you do uh, day by day to keep an interest, to, to feed uh, an interest that you have, a passion that you have, can pay a lot of dividends later on. That's one message. And they can be small things. Uh, of course, well, doing an internship is not a small thing per se. It was a big chunk of your week that was dedicated to that, but you were towards the end of your PhD. You had talked with your supervisor. It was fine, but you had this curiosity and this will to try it. And you could have decided, oh, no, you know, it's too much of a commitment. It would have, it would have been very easy in an alternate universe that you would, uh, you would have seen it and you would have said, oh, yeah, sorry, I'm doing a PhD. It's... Uh, I, I want to finish it. It's not for me. So there's this thing about uh, so feeding or, or nurturing something in you and not letting it die because you're in a PhD. That's one. To take a leap of faith of experimenting something different if an opportunity arises, and that that's what happened with this internship that you had. To believe when someone in another space says, you know what, I know you're in another space, but hey, I'm just just letting you know it'd be great to have you as a colleague. Yeah. Believe them. Don't, yeah, don't uh, disregard or uh, devalue what they're saying because your imposter syndrome is telling, oh, no, you're, you know, you're, you're going to be a professor and you're an academic. This is not for you. Um, and maybe a last one, because I know that's, this is a lot of, of little points, but I think they're really nice nuggets that, that we had along the way. Um, uh, the, a final one is... Uh, it kind of ties up with the first one because it's little things, but it's little actions. You kept on writing. You write. You wrote this email to this person at CBC saying, hey, there should be more women uh, represented in, in this show. It sounds very, you know, unrelated, but because you, you mentioned it, somehow it means that there's there's a link there. For sure, the person remembered or or could have gone back and said, oh, yeah, I did get an email from you. And so you were already someone in her mind when that second email arrived and you weren't just a new person trying to to get her attention. Uh, and, and there was a, there, I think, and I think the point there, it's a point that I, and I'm going to finish here with, because I think it's, it's already a lot. Um, and it's also where we end, where we ended with, with what you shared, but 
um, nurturing connections, real connections. Because when you wrote her the first time, it was because there was something that was important to you that you needed to share with her about this content. You didn't have any second, uh, you know, uh, hidden interests or whatever. You were just connecting with the person and saying, hey, I'm a listener. I'd like to have this improved. Uh, and I, what I often say is, ideally, if you want to have a healthy transition outside of academia, you should start building relationships, uh, a wider network earlier on, since like the middle of your PhD at least. And it's because if you if you start building your network and your mindset is already, can you please get me a job? It's you're gonna fail. If you if you ask someone, hey, by the way, if there's a job, but someone you already know from six months, from a year ago, and say, hey, by the way, I'm going to be finishing my PhD in a few months. If you hear about something, I'm interested, you know, in, in working in your domain. Totally different conversation, and I think it's, there's a parallel with what what happened with you, and uh, and I really, really, I really think your your uh, story encapsulates a lot of great, great nuggets, and I hope people who listen. Will uh, will be able to savor them and to to take some notes and and to be able to kind of avoid the mistakes, avoid the pitfalls, and uh, and use the good ideas that uh, that she shared. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> Melissa, if people want to kind of thank you or just ask you uh, something more, of course, here you have a website, melissajjustmonti.com. But uh, is there another way uh, that, that, or a better way for, for people to reach out and maybe comment on what they heard on the episode? Um, they can go to my website. They can. I have an email address there. They can email me. I respond to almost every email, respectful email I get. Some are not so respectful, but I know your listeners are just, they, they would never do anything like that. Um, on LinkedIn, I'm on Substack. I just started a new Substack newsletter. Um, yeah, and it's it's paying it forward. There's there are great people who helped me, and so if I can help people and you know provide some guidance or just be a space to offer some encouragement, happy to do that. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Uh, as I always say to people who are watching or listening, you can hear how uh, the the people who are on the show are. Nice people who are on LinkedIn are open to be uh, to be reached out to. So if you're a little bit more shy, more timid, don't hesitate to. And but if you have something to ask uh, of Melissa, um, some more details or just a feedback on the story, just reach out. Don't don't hesitate. Um, if you're listening and you have uh, something that hasn't been covered on the show that you'd like to be covered, just you can write to ideas at papaphd.com. I'm always looking for new ideas, may even ideas of guests. So uh, don't hesitate to do that too. And uh, yeah, I I, uh, I just want to thank you for uh, for being with us. Hope you 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 have some nice take home messages. Uh, and the latest, the last thing is, if there's someone around you who's doing the PhD and who would benefit from uh, hearing Melissa's story, don't hesitate to share this episode with them. Uh, Melissa knows it. It's one of the best things you can do to help a podcast is to share it with someone you know. So, Melissa, thank you so much for being on Beyond the Thesis. This was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Beyond the Thesis conversation with me, David Mendez, and my guest, Melissa Gismondi. If you'd like to support the show and help me produce more interviews like this, 
just go to papaphd.com forward slash PayPal and donate there. And if you want to help a little bit more, please go to papaphd.com forward slash audience and fill in the survey that is there for you and leave a comment so I can give you a shout out in a future episode. Thank you for being a fan, happy listening and happy sharing. 